When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. This is an iHeart Original. William Challoner arranged the whole thing. The printers, William Newbolt and Edward Butler, were going to meet him at the Blue Post Pub in Haymarket, near St. James's Palace in Westminster. Challoner had asked them to print 40 copies of ex-King James II's most recent declaration, proclaiming his intention to take back the throne. Newbolt and Butler showed up, pamphlets in hand, and sat down for a bit of supper. Challoner's treat. Cheers, my lads. But suddenly, Challoner gave the signal. And as his biographer wrote, Instead of grace after meat, he entertained them with musketeers. Instead of supper, the printers were arrested by the Crown soldiers and packed off to await trial at Newgate Jail. That's right, it was a setup. One that ultimately saw two poor printers executed for treason and one William Challoner made a thousand pounds richer. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law an iHeart original podcast. Episode 4, The Other Side of the Coin. One, 
The Demon Printers of Fleet Street. So I'm standing at Ludgate Circus. It's the corner of Fleet Street and Farringdon Street. Fleet Street has a lot of history. You might have heard Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Not a real person, by the way. Or, if you're a journalism history buff, because those do actually exist and I am one of them, you'd recognize Fleet Street as the historic heart of London's print media industry. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to walk down Fleet Street now, going west. So I've heard that there is a mural down here on Magpie Alley that depicts the Fleet Street print media industry. So I'm hoping to find that. Back in the late 1400s, English merchant William Caxton introduced the printing press to England. Now he set up in nearby Westminster, but after his death, his partner, Winken de Word, just actually his name, set up shop on Shoe Lane, which is just a few hundred meters from where I am now in 1500. And that was really the start of what became this area's most lasting industry. Oh, here's the mural. So right at the top is William Caxton. It's a, it's a painting of William Caxton showing his printing to King Edward IV. And below it, there's etchings of the hawker from 1780, who's a person selling newspapers on the street corner. There's the wooden printing press from 1600. There's a printing office here from 1690, which depicts exactly what it would have looked like. You've got the man setting the type, and you've got the big rolling printing press, you've got the paper, and you've got a dog sitting on the floor because no office is complete without a dog. Now that would have been right around the time that Newton would have been working and living in London. And it's also right around the time when the print media industry is really starting to, to take off. It's becoming something that can actually change and shape public policy, public discourse. It's something that people are actually reading and listening to. It's also something that clever people were exploiting in a bunch of different ways. Which brings us back to William Newbold and Edward Butler, our hapless printers. At the time they made their ill-fated bargain with Chaloner, they very likely would have been employed in a workshop like that around Fleet Street. After all, they were printers and this neighborhood was full of them. The pamphlet that Newbolt and Butler printed was only paper, but it was dangerous paper. In his declaration of 1693, former King James II, exiled to France, promised to protect the Protestant Church of England and allow Parliament to proceed. Just, come on, guys, take me back. Thus, we have sincerely declared our royal intentions to regain our own right and to relieve our people from oppression and slavery. And may God give us success in the prosecution of the one as we sincerely intend the confirmation of the other. The 17th century saw an increasing recognition that printing meant power. So printed material was subject to licensing by the government. The government was restrictive in some senses. Sexy stories about witches were a-okay. But printing the intention of a deposed king to snatch his throne out from under the people who'd taken it from him was definitely not on. 
more than just not on. This was actual treason. Treason cost people their heads. But other people had figured out how to make treason pay. Handsomely. William Chaloner knew that the government of the relatively new monarchs, William and Mary, was offering a thousand pounds for confirmed Jacobite traitors, people who supported James II. Jacobite, just in case you were wondering, came from Jacobus, which was Latin for James. This was an outrageous amount, nearly 245,000 pounds in today's money. And Chaloner wanted it. Who could blame him? The only problem was... He didn't have any Jacobite traders on hand. So he decided, true to form, to make some. He approached a bunch of London printers with an offer to pay them to print the pamphlet. Most of them said no, obviously. But remember, Chaloner had that knack of tongue padding, which is still a gross way of saying that he could talk just about anyone into just about anything. He assured the luckless Newbolton butler that the pamphlets weren't going to be distributed, that they were just for a private gentleman in the country. Plus, Newbolton butler needed the business. So they agreed. The pamphlets were printed, and Newbolton butler never got to eat that dinner they were promised. Cheers, my lads. Instead, they were thrown in Newgate for four months. The prosecution presented their case at the Sessions House, better known as the Old Bailey, in September 1693. Being moved and instigated by the power of the devil and being enemies of our sovereign lord and lady, the king and queen, they did compose, print, and publish, or cause to be composed, printed, and published a most false and scandalous, malicious, and traitorous libel entitled His Majesty's Most Gracious Declaration. Butler and Newbolt responded that they were hired men, and that the printing press wasn't even theirs. We are but servants. It was never known that servants did suffer for their master's faults. The court, of course, disagreed. Butler and Newbolt knew what they were doing. They were found guilty and sentenced to death, and Chaloner collected his reward. What William Chaloner really had was the knack of looking at a chaotic situation and seeing immediately how to exploit it. The country's crumbling currency, the paranoia of the new government, and now, this new industry, the media. Pamphlets, like the ones that the printers got done for. Thus, we have sincerely declared our royal intent. Like the one that Chaloner's anonymous biographer printed after his death. A short view of the life of William Chaloner. Like the one that Peter Blondeau fired off at the moneyers. A humble representation of Peter Blondeau. Were huge business at the end of the 17th century. Some unlucky rogue's trick or other. Have you read the ideas of this Chaloner chap? And by the abuse of the minters of our money who have made the coin with so little art and ingenuity. Pamphlets were basically little books, usually a longish essay. If you wrote one, you could either pay a printer to make and distribute them, or a printer would more or less invest in your words in the hopes that they could earn their money back through sales. Pamphlets weren't often printed in quantities less than 500 because these were meant to be distributed widely. They, as well as magazines, broadsheets, ballads, gazettes, manuscripts of all types, were sold everywhere on London streets. And it didn't entirely matter if you could read. 
it's not kind of a binary thing, being able to read or not being able to read. In terms of the political culture around print, by 1700, there are all kinds of social spaces in which the illiterate person or the semi-literate person can encounter the contents of print. That's Professor Joad Raymond. He teaches and studies 16th and 17th century news communication at Queen Mary University of London. These are, you know, churchyards around St. Paul's Churchyard, which is where the, the book trade is more or less centred. Um, they are coffee houses, though those are perhaps slightly more socially elite um, institutions. That's notionally, the coffee house is a primarily male uh, space where you can go sit, drink a cup of coffee, and access all of the books that have been published this, all of the, the, the pamphlets and newspapers that have been published this week. So they work as kind of our experience of, of, of a library or indeed a Starbucks. And also in those places, you might engage in conversation and debate the contents of the, the newspaper. So, so these are spaces where this kind of conversation can happen, where political debate happens and printed and written texts are part of that political debate. Newspapers were growing in importance, but pamphlets... They were really the beginning of mass media, a way of speaking directly to the people about everything. Foreign news, social and political developments, religious rights and trade, salacious rumors and sexy biography, stories about murderers and strange beasts and about witches. Witches! Witches in Essex! Pamphlets! News from the dead. Or a true the capture of the Sultan's granddaughter by the pirate Henry. The trial of Mary Blandy, spinster for the murder of her father. Lots of stories about witches. News of the Sussex dragon, a most terrible sea serpent. The vindication of Christmas. A single piece of written material would likely be passed on to 10 or 20 other people. And that's not including the people who heard it read aloud. So... Going viral was a thing, even in the late 17th century. To put it another way, pamphlets were almost like Twitter, like a physical proto-Twitter. They were sometimes ill-informed or just funny or titillating, but they could also be useful or clever, and they could sway public opinion, which was just starting to be important. And that's why Newbolt and Butler had to die, why they had to be executed for something as ostensibly innocuous as printing a pamphlet. Clearly by the 1660s and 1670s, the public and the views of the public are perceived as mattering. And so there is a, certainly a London constituency in which the notional and actual public can be brought to bear upon public figures in order to influence their actions, and to persuade them that something should be done in a particular way. So remember that Chaloner published his own pamphlets in 1694, outlining his proposals to fix the coinage and confound the counterfeiters. Now England hath been more grieved with clipped and counterfeit money than any other country. For want of proper... Again, Chaloner knew a lot more than most people about counterfeiting, given that coining was his bread and butter. But this pamphlet scam, this was part of a much bigger, longer con, even bigger than setting up some gormless printers to hang for treason. Chaloner was throwing his ideas out to the public, certainly, an entity that had become more important, more courtable, if that's a word, over the last century. 
but he was also trying to reach some very specific people. And he could do that because these specific people were paying attention to what was being printed and passed around because they were the kind of people who took note of what was being talked about in coffee shops and places of commerce. I guess that particular example sounds very much like the kind of debate that takes place within London, which is designed specifically to influence not people in the country more broadly. It sounds very much like the kind of debate that's intended to shape the opinions of the major players who are conscious not so much of the people who are voting them in, but of the, the, kind of the, 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 the clients and, and the interest groups with whom they interact. With his pamphlet, his foray into manipulating the media and manufacturing influence, Chaloner was getting closer than ever to what he really wanted, to get inside the mint itself. He scorned the petty rogueries of tricking single men, but boldly aimed at imposing upon a whole kingdom. And whilst he was acting villainy in private, pretended himself to be still busied for the good of the public. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Act Two. A little creative accounting. The media wasn't the only fledgling institution that Chaloner was trying to manipulate. Pamphlets, print media, these were upending power dynamics. And this was a big shift. But the coinage was still a mess, and so was the country's finances. And that required a little ingenuity. One of the things about, you know, times of great change is that 
we get abilities, we get capacities whose implications we don't fully get. That's Tom Levinson, author of Newton and the Counterfeiter and his most recent book, Money for Nothing. And so what happens in the 1690s um, is you get a whole bunch of new weird ideas about money. Uh, and one of the things that those ideas do, one of the reasons they actually get developed is because England needs money. The cost of keeping William and Mary on the throne and their heads on their bodies, really, wasn't cheap. Money was being siphoned off by William's war with his Catholic arch-rival and the country's longtime frenemy, France, in what would be called the Nine Years' War. So you got all this money you want to spend, but you don't have the money available. Um, so what you need to do is figure out how to get the future to uh, pay for the things you want to do in the present. The idea that money, currency, is ultimately just an agreement that this thing, whatever it is, has or represents value. This was an idea that was just getting some traction. And England is about to take that idea to the next level and build a whole financial system around it. But first, Parliament raised taxes, which is never popular. And then it got creative and started issuing government bonds, the first ever, really, which are basically loans to the government that are assured to yield a return over time. And when that stopped being enough, a group of the country's wealthiest men clubbed together to form a bank. Not just a bank, the bank, as in the Bank of England, the country's first national bank. The Bank of England was founded in 1694 after an act of parliament incorporated it. It opened with 1.2 million pounds put up by subscribers who became the governor and the company of the bank. It was, to put this in perspective, only the second such central bank in existence behind the Swedish Reichsbank. Private banks had been around for centuries. If you were wealthy, you'd leave your stacks of gold and silver with the goldsmiths or someone else who had secure vaults, like Gringotts. The goldsmiths charged a fee to people who used the service, but this meant that there was a lot of money just sort of lying around collecting dust. Some folks realized that this money could be put to better use, like being used to loan to other people or being invested in new colonization schemes and the whatnot. Better is definitely arguable. Fast forward to 1694, and as it turns out, it's not just private citizens who need loans, but the government, the country, too. Here's Tom Levinson. Basically, what happens is the English Parliament invents the national debt in 1693 when it, for the first time, authorizes borrowing a million pounds that are not a call on the notional person of the king. Uh, you know, it's not the monarch's treasury. It's not the monarch's uh, resources that pay for it, as is notionally, ultimately, the case in an absolute monarchy. In this case, uh, the million pounds is sought by Parliament and guaranteed as an obligation that the taxing authority in Britain, Parliament, uh, has undertaken. And this works. And just like that, we have the national debt. And politicians have been arguing about it ever since. Now, it worked because private bank customers left their money in the bank, which was then lent to the government on the understanding that not everyone was going to withdraw their money at the same time. This, incidentally, becomes the foundation of modern capitalism, the national financial system, and what is properly called fractional reserve banking. This system also had the effect of doubling the power of the money that the bank held. And this is where things get super tricky and where the biggest innovation comes in and where Chaloner sees a weakness. So say you deposit 100 pounds. That money would be used to finance the government's war in Europe 
but you're a high roller. You're a person who's moving lots of money around all the time. You're not just some dude trying to buy a dish of coffee with a busted penny. The bank wanted to make sure that its customers still had access to and could, in a sense, use their money. So it created what were called running cash notes. These were bank-issued pieces of paper that the bank was obligated to turn into coin on demand. Paper that had value. Paper that could itself be traded for goods and services. Paper that was money. If I could make a believable explosion sound here, I would, but I can't. So, boom. Using paper to represent value had actually been part of the landscape for a while. There were deeds to property, for example, or promissory notes, which were essentially proto-checks, or there were bills of exchange, or any record of value being passed on. But this was on a much larger, more regular, more organized scale. What's called in the profession the English and then British financial revolution of the 1690s into the uh, first half of the 18th century really is a major and rapid development of these ideas. This notion of money as an abstract idea has been building for a long time. But then, you know, very quickly, the implications of that get realized in London and Amsterdam and Paris, but especially in London, where, where a number of these events, you know, just sort of blow up in a big way. Isaac Newton, for one, really got this. He got the idea that money doesn't strictly have to be a physical material thing. Other people got it too, of course, but they worried. In coffee shops and in banks and on the proto-stock exchanges in London and on the continent, about the implications of money being a kind of abstraction. Newton once wrote a defense of, quote, paper credit, as he termed it. "'Tis mere opinion that sets a value upon money." We value it because with it we can purchase all sorts of commodities. The same opinion sets a like value upon paper security. Money could be what everyone agrees it is, and it could exist in an abstract or future state, but still be used in the present. This was a big step. Once we got used to the notion of paper money, other shifts were easier to make, such as to what we have now, what's called fiat currency, which does not derive its value from the material from which it's made or even representing. It has value because the government and authorities agree that it does and guarantee that it does. Another fun and bonkers way to think about this is how much money there is in the world right now. According to data from January 2021, there's about 37 trillion in U.S. dollars in circulation. That's the money that you can immediately pay to someone or convert into actual cash. It's the most liquid. But the amount of money, and this is the essence of money as in like a pure number, in investments and cryptocurrencies and derivatives and products that have value but aren't like a real physical thing, that's more than 1.2 quadrillion with a qua. And without this conceptual shift about what money could be in the 17th century, that quadrillion wouldn't exist. But you can probably already see the problem with this, because William Chaloner certainly did. Counterfeiting coins, that took effort, raw materials, tools. Counterfeiting banknotes, 
Well, all that really took was a bit of paper and a good artist. The Bank of England realized the danger it was in, so it took precautions. The notes were printed on marbled paper, and they were most often issued in 100-pound denominations, a huge sum of money for your average person. This offered some protection because it's not like you could move a fake 100-pound note by paying your butcher with it. But within a year of the Bank of England's opening, Challoner was counterfeiting 100-pound Bank of England notes. In fact, it was probably less than a year. His first fakes weren't noticed until August 1695, a year after the bank started. Challoner was a skilled man with a graving plate. That was what the copper engraving plate he etched the bank's notes onto was called. He had a steady hand and a good eye for detail. He would sit at a table in his rented lodgings in a less salubrious part of town, not wanting to do his dirty work in his fine lodgings in Knightsbridge. Carefully, over a period of weeks, he scratched the bank's seal at the corner, Britannia herself framed by two fronds of foliage, and he would shine up the plate using a cloth. Once he had the plate done, all he needed was the fancy paper. What he did with the notes he printed up is unclear. He might have tried to sell them on to other London criminals. But Bank of England officials eventually traced a counterfeit note back to the printer who had done the marbled paper. The printer snitched on Challoner. Challoner was arrested and tossed into Newgate Jail. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Act 3. All that glitters is not gold. Challoner was caught. So he did the only thing he could. He immediately claps in with the bank. 
delivered up the false notes he had and became an impeacher of his fellows, whereupon the governor and directors of the bank generously forbore prosecution. Chaloner gave up some names, other criminals who were trying to hoodwink the bank. The bank had recently lost about a thousand pounds when it cashed some bad promissory notes. So Chaloner told them who'd done it and where to find them and neglected to mention that he might have had a role in that scam. Not only did the bank officials generously forbear prosecution and spring him from Newgate, but they also, and I find this actually hard to believe, but it was printed right there in that biographical pamphlet, so it's got to be true, gave him a reward of 200 pounds. That's more than 38,000 pounds in today's money, or nearly $53,000, which is just insane. Like, how good of a con man was Chaloner that the bank governors were like, yes, this all checks out, thank you very much, here's Here's a boatload of money. In November 1695, emboldened by his success, he even sent a list of suggestions to the bank governors on how to deal with counterfeit notes. It's almost impossible not to admire Chaloner. His anonymous biographer, for all the pearl grasping, certainly seemed to. But this was a dangerous jig our Chaloner was dancing. His efforts to get himself noticed had worked. Charles Morden, the Earl of Monmouth and former Lord of the Treasury, was a political player who was on the outs. He'd once been King William's buddy, but that had gone south somehow. He was looking for ways to prove his worth and to get one over on his rival, Charles Montague, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the man who would later give Isaac Newton the warden job. Morton saw an opportunity in William Chaloner, specifically in Chaloner's ideas that he'd put into his 1694 pamphlet on how to fix the coinage. Obviously, it had found its way to the right people. Morton was impressed, so impressed, that he got Chaloner an audience with the Privy Council, perhaps the most powerful men in the country, the advisors to the sovereign. Now, just William after Mary's death in December 1694. Finally, Chaloner's long game was paying off. He, the son of a country weaver, a man who used to peddle dildo watches and quack medicines in the streets, had the confidence of men like Charles Mordaunt and the governors of the Bank of England. And now, he was about to make his play for the mint itself. He does actually get the ear of government. That's Chris Barker, historian at the modern Royal Mint. You end up with this situation whereby he's sort of really selling himself to the, the various committees that have been tasked with investigating sort of miscarriages at the Royal Mint. And he's standing before a governmental committee, or at least going before it in various ways. <laughs> that's, that's something that's an incredible thing about Chaloner, is that he's actually getting um, officials to believe what he's saying. He's selling his con at the highest levels. Chaloner walked into his meeting with the council at the Palace of Whitehall, the enormous complex on the banks of the Thames, in the spring of 1695. And there, in the presence of some of the country's most influential men, he unleashed a torrent of well-aimed criticism at the Mint, describing an institution that was either incompetent or corrupt or both. The Mint is either incompetent or corrupt or both. And he, he told the councillors, was just the man to help clean it up. We don't have a really good record of exactly what Chaloner said or exactly who was there to hear it. 
But we do know that Chaloner wasn't suddenly made head of the Mint and running his scams from there. But Chaloner's allegations did lead to an investigation of the Mint's practices. Chaloner wasn't the only person raising the concern that the Mint's moneyers were taking advantage of their proximity to all that gold and silver. And as you can imagine, the Mint employees weren't too pleased with that. They already suspected that maybe there was a not-so-above-board reason that this Mr. Chaloner knew so much about counterfeiting. The Mint's higher-ups hired private thief-takers, who were basically bounty hunters, to bring in a load of witnesses, mostly fellow coiners and criminals, to testify against Chaloner. They didn't have to look far. Some of Chaloner's acquaintances included part-time thief-takers and full-time extortionists, not to mention a motley crew of petty criminals who'd seen the inside of various jails for various reasons. When they had enough witnesses willing to rat on Chaloner, they snapped him up and threw him in Newgate. Again. Early in 1696, just days before Parliament ordered the recoinage, Chaloner wrote to Charles Montague, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He declared that he was in jail on trumped-up charges, that he was actually a whistleblower who dared to call out the Mint officials and got arrested for it. Now, you'd think that Montague would be a little suspicious of Chaloner. After all, he was writing from jail. But even if Montague did want to check up on Chaloner's past— there wouldn't really have been any place to do so. After all, there's no police force, no crime bureau, no Interpol, no one sharing information. And he knows that Chaloner had testified in front of the Privy Council. Now that's got to mean he had some kind of political clout. Montague, fearing a scandal that could taint the recoinage, had Chaloner released. In May, not long after Newton accepted the job as warden, Chaloner testified before the investigative committee of the Lord's Justices of Appeal. Newton wasn't there, but wow, did Chaloner put on a show. This wasn't just a reprise of his performance for the Privy Council. He'd never made a false coin in his life, he claimed, but he knew who did. The Mint is staffed by corrupt moneyers who are cheating the nation by making the coins too light, not the full weight and putting the difference into their own pockets. And even worse. They are using the Mint's own machinery to make counterfeit guineas out of base metals. And worst of all, those excellent, nearly indistinguishable from the real deal counterfeit coins making the rounds in the streets? Well, they were so good because they were made using the Mint's own dyes. The Mint's own engraver has sold the official Mint dyes to counterfeiters. Which counterfeiters? Hmm, Chaloner knew that too. Patrick Coffey. His own former accomplice. Coffey had maybe become inconvenient. And who else? Hmm, the mysterious figure called William Chandler. Spoiler alert, it was him. William Chaloner was William Chandler. It was his name that he used on the streets. But okay. The Lord's Justices of Appeal don't know that William Chandler is William Chaloner. But even so, why would anyone believe William Chaloner? Powerful friends notwithstanding, he'd just been in Newgate. The thing was, some of the dyes had actually gone missing. And whether he liked it or not, as the Mint's new warden, 
Isaac Newton had to find out who took them. Coming up on Newton's Law. Criminals, like dogs, always return to their own vomit. I saw in William Challoner's brother-in-law's house cutters and tools, instruments proper for coining. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Mark McDonnell, Robert Jack, and Austin Rodriguez-McRobbie. Special thanks to Professor Joad Raymond, Chris Barker, and Tom Levinson. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatikudur and Finiflex Sound Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening. Bye, chaps. See you tomorrow on Austin's Weekly. I'm here till Thursday, folks. <laughs> we went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.